It's good to be here. Uh, thank you for the privilege of preaching the good news. These are the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood burning angels. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then, then one of the burning angels flew to me. Having in his hand a burning coal, he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. That's, that's how the prophet Isaiah became the prophet Isaiah. Uh, you, you know this, don't you, that the, the prophets didn't just drop down out of heaven as mouthpieces of the Almighty. Up until that day, Isaiah was just a guy. He had a, a day job keeping the fires burning in Solomon's temple. He, you know, he owned a three-bedroom in Bethany because he couldn't afford the real estate in Jerusalem proper. And then, all of a sudden, one morning, he comes into work. He's probably running late, thinking about 12 different things. The kids are, they've been bickering at the breakfast table, and the line at the local Starbucks was insane. And he sees the Lord. And everything changes. And from that moment on, Isaiah is not just a guy. And from that moment on, his life is not just a life. He has been transformed. He has been restored. He has been renewed. And, and that, that singular experience of seeing God, of falling to his knees in desperate pleading before the throne, and then of being lifted up and restored, defines a, a 50 or 60 year career, a 50 or 60 year calling to live an extraordinary life with God. And that it carries him all the way through to the end of his life. And so the text that we're going to look at in more detail comes from very near the end of Isaiah. It's in chapters 63 and 64. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there now, and I think we're going to put it on the screen. 
This is a a prayer that Isaiah prays as, as an old man, starting in chapter 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Remember for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not Look for you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? From that first day into the temple until the prayers of his last day, nothing changes for Isaiah. His life is about seeing God. His life is about crying out to God in desperation. And his life is about being renewed. And my hope this morning, my agenda for us this morning is that we would see that in this text and start to walk in the way that Isaiah walked. That our lives would be about seeing God, about crying out to him, and about being renewed. So we're going to walk through that, picking out pieces of this prayer, and see the same three progressions. First, that a vision of God leads to desperation. Second, that desperation leads to pleading. And third, that pleading leads to renewal. Vision to desperation, desperation to pleading, and pleading to renewal. So, 
Vision leads to desperation. Uh, normally, you would think crisis leads to desperation, right? It, it makes sense if Andrew Brunson is desperate. But you and I, we're not in a Turkish prison. Our lives are pretty good. And crisis, crisis can and does lead to desperation, but vision can do the same thing. Fifteen years ago, nobody wanted an iPhone. You realize this, right? Not a soul on the planet had an interest in owning a smartphone 15 years ago. And now, we are all more desperate for them than we care to admit. I was in Colorado this past weekend for a few weeks. I didn't, I didn't even lose my actual phone, just the internet on it cut off for three days. And I experienced a level of low-grade panic that I am ashamed to admit to you. And that my 2003 self would never have experienced, because as far as I knew in 2003, there was no such thing. And then a few years later, Steve Jobs came along and created a vision. Not just of this cool device that combines a cell phone and a camera and an MP3 player and a map and a Game Boy and 15 other things, but of a, a lifestyle, of a, a fuller way of being. You notice that none of the Apple ads for iPhone have people in an airport terminal with dead eyes, right? Although that's where I mostly see people looking at their phones, like they're one step out of the grave. But that wasn't the vision that was created, and it made us desperate. Vision creates desperation, even in the midst of ordinary life. This is what happened to Isaiah. In the year King Isaiah died, he saw the Lord. And you know what? Historically, the year that King Isaiah died was a pretty good year for God's people. Isaiah had been one of the good kings. He reigned for more than 50 years, and things were looking up. Isaiah was not in crisis. Jerusalem was not in crisis. But he saw God. He had a vision. And then he became desperate. And it stuck with him. He wasn't okay with the regular life anymore. He wasn't okay with things being ordinary anymore. Look at 63.19, his, his complaint. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled like those who are not called by your name. He's not saying we're devastated. He's not saying of all people we are most to be pitied. He's saying we're just like everybody else. Life is regular and I can't take it. It's not enough. I have seen the Lord and I am desperate for more. Gary Haugen who uh, is the founder and president of the International Justice Mission, an organization that uh, goes into locations where children are enslaved and busts them out and rebuilds society to prevent that sort of thing from happening. He said this in his book, Just Courage. I sense among many Christians in the West a subtle but deep discontent. It seems that we cannot rid ourselves of this primal, unquenchable yearning to make our lives matter. By divine hardwiring, we desperately want our lives to count, really significantly count for God's rescuing work in the world. Nothing else fills up the void. In this era of plenty, 
I believe many Christians yearn for liberation from small and trivial things and to experience the passion and power of God on the more jagged edges of faith. This is a voice of divine restlessness. This is a voice of sacred discontent. This is a voice of holy yearning for more. This is the voice that Isaiah heard, and this is the voice God wants you to hear as well. To be made desperate, dissatisfied, discontent. Let me clarify, by desperation, we don't mean panic. We don't mean, oh no, what are we going to do as if God were not seated on a throne high and lifted up. And by desperation, we don't mean shame or self-pity. I am the worst of all creatures. My life is the worst of all. No, desperation simply means I recognize that things within me and without are not as they should be. They don't line up with who God is and who he made me to be. And I will not settle for less than I was created for. That's desperation, and that is supposed to be us, and it's vision that leads us there. So, so if you would not be satisfied with the ordinary, if you would not be content with the normal, if you would, as, uh, as God said to another prophet, to Jeremiah, if you would run with the horses, if you would sail the wind and skip across the mountaintops, if you would know God's mercy and be made merciful, if you would know his love and be made lovely, if you would freely give yourself away day after day after day only to discover that you have not lost yourself at all but finally for the first time begun to find out who you were intended to be, then you do not need a five-year plan or a self-help program. You do not need to take up Tai Chi or give up gluten. You do not need to craft a life vision statement. You need to see God. You need a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne. This is what starts us down the path to renewal, seeing God. And I, like you, recognize that in the text and go, okay. I mean, it's cool that Isaiah had a day job in the temple, but my day job is at Ingalls, and I have never seen the train of God's robe fill the frozen food section. How do you want me to do this? How do I see God? Fortunately, God gives us the answer. He says in John chapter 1 that in Jesus... The God who is seated on the throne, that God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then God says in 2 Corinthians that we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of of Jesus are being renewed in the same image, in the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to the next. 
So if you would see God, if you would have waken in you a desperate hunger for life as it was meant to be, then look at Jesus. Put even more concretely, read the Gospels. The Bible has four accounts of the life of Jesus in it. Read them and listen to me. Don't read them the way Mark Twain read classics in order to say that he had read them. Don't go home and blaze through Matthew so that you can come back and sit in the same seat and look at the person next to you and be like, I'm already on Mark 4. What's up with you? No, 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 no. You are reading slowly, imaginatively, reading in order to be what Eugene Peterson calls translated, taken from one place to another, lifted up out of your front porch rocking chair or your seat at the drip or the the driver's seat of your car or the top of lookout or wherever you read, and taken there to be with Jesus. Go and, and read in the end of Mark chapter 4, and be there as one of the disciples in that little boat on the Sea of Galilee in the dark of night with wave after wave crashing over you, matched by wave after wave of panic rising up within you, bile in your throat. And then you cry out and Jesus wakes up and says, be still. And the wind ceases and the sea is silent and all is well. Be there. Read John chapter 4 and be the woman at the well, cloaked in layer upon layer upon layer of secret shame and loneliness that you would never dare disclose to anyone and have Jesus seek you out, journey miles out of his way to find you and look you in the eye and say, I already know everything about you. I know secrets about you that you don't even know about yourself and I would be with you. I love you, I claim you as mine. Look at Jesus. See God. There is no other place to begin. You must see the Lord. And when you do, it will, it will awaken in you desperation. Not mild interest. Not curiosity or vague hope, but hunger, an inability to cope with anything else than being renewed in the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. Vision leads to desperation. And from there, we get to the second progression. Desperation leads to pleading. Desperation leads to pleading. Desperation doesn't always lead to pleading, right? When, when the, the desperate hunger for iPhone technology was awakened in us, we saw the ad, or our friend had one, or in my case, I became the only elder at iSight without one, and I couldn't follow the group texts, and I wanted to throw my cell phone through the window every time that Rick's responded back with something terribly clever that I couldn't open because it came as an image All I had to do was go to the store and buy an iPhone, right? Desperation led to action. Pretty straightforward. Desperation can just lead to action. Uh, Up until four months ago, my family could not sit around our dining room table in the dining room 
we have in our home that's about six feet by nine feet. And so this became increasingly frustrating and we took action. We built a different dining room. I neglected being a husband and I neglected being a father and I stayed up late and I got up early and the kids helped. And now we can put like 93 people at our dining room table and it's great. Desperation led to action. It doesn't work that way here. Because there's no action you can take to make the vision of God come alive in your life. Hear me, no action you can take. So when I, when I say desperation is going to lead to pleading, and by pleading I do indeed mean prayer, and you immediately, you're that person who struggles to pray, or maybe even used to struggle to pray before you gave up struggling to pray. If you're that person and you're just sitting here like, I can't even do this. No, 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 back up. Don't try and ratchet up your prayer action. Force your way through this. Go see God. Go look at Jesus. And stay there as long as you need. And that will awaken the desperation that will lead to pleading because when you see Jesus and his fullness and he becomes both endlessly incomparably desirable and just as unattainable and you know that you could no more renew yourself in the image of Jesus than you could perform heart surgery on yourself which is what the Bible likens it to then all thought of action will fall away and what you will be left with is pleading Desperation will lead to pleading, to crying out to God to fix this. Look at chapters, chapter 64, verses 7, 8, and 9. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. The image here is of, of God seated on a throne like a king and, and a citizen in dire straits convicted of a grave offense with no other hope of appeal, running into the throne room and grabbing hold of the feet of the king and saying, please, please, please help me. That is the kind of pleading that Isaiah knows. That's the kind of pleading we're being called to. And then verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Isaiah is pleading with God for two things. One, for forgiveness. He knows, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I can't do this on my own. There's no action I can take. So would you just don't remember my iniquity anymore. Just decide that I'm yours. That's all I'm asking for, redeem me. I am a slave and I need you to buy me out. I, I am in prison and I need you to bust down the doors. Get me out of here. But Isaiah, he's wise and he asks for more than that. Because you, you know what happens to a huge percentage of criminals who are simply set free and turned out on the street, right? They, they go back to prison. 
And the same thing happens to us. We experience a, a breakthrough with our sin. And then it, Tuesday comes. And the same thing all over again. When, when slaves were set free in this country in the 19th century, there was a, a brief window when they were okay. For about 15 years it was called Reconstruction, but then everything except their freedom was taken away and they immediately ended back up in de facto slavery. We need more than release. We need not less than, but more than forgiveness. We need God not just to be our Redeemer, but to be our Father. And so we plead with him for that, just as Isaiah did. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. You hear what Isaiah is pleading for. Don't just set me free and then leave me a misshapen lump of clay to be trod upon once more, but take me and form me, make me, renew me in this image of your son from one degree of glory to the next. Shape me with perfect and brilliant craftsmanship until I belong in your household. Help me, God, I see you, and I want to live in your image, and I want to live with you, and I cannot do it on my own. And I am pleading with you, don't just look at Jesus, look to him. Look to him for forgiveness, for he is your redeemer who died in your place, that your iniquities might be remembered no more, that there would be no record of them, and, and that in front of your name it would simply say, that one belongs to me. That's my little brother, that's my little sister, they're with me. And in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, God becomes your father. You know that this prayer is one of the very few places in the Old Testament where God is referred to as a father. And then Jesus comes along. And not only does Jesus constantly call God father, but he commands you to do the same. He says, yes, God is king, God is far off, he is high and lifted up, and angels whose voices shake the temple fall down and worship before him. And in me, God is also your dad, who scoops you up in his arms, who holds you until the nightmare passes, who would never leave you or forsake you. See Jesus, look at him. And in looking at him, seize upon the desperate opportunity to look to him, to plead, knowing already what his answer will be. Because it has been declared in his death and resurrection that his answer to you, to everyone who comes before him pleading, is yes. Yes, I will make you mine. Yes, I will renew you. Yes, I will lift you up into the very glory of God. In Jesus, pleading leads to renewal. Vision leads to desperation, and then desperation leads to pleading. And in Jesus, the third progression, pleading leads to renewal. And make no mistake, we are talking about desperate pleading that leads to renewal. Look again at, at verses 
1, 2, and 3 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Brothers and sisters, this kind of prayer is not bartering. This kind of prayer is not negotiating. This is not coming before God and saying, listen, almighty and all-knowing one, I figured out what I need. Could you hook me up with this and this and this? I'm going to need a promotion, a spouse, an early retirement, a 3.0, a less horrible boss. No, 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 no. This is Isaiah coming and saying, I understand the consequences of what I'm asking for. When I say I want you to rend the heavens, to tear them apart and descend upon the earth, I know that the very mountains are going to shake, that the foundations of my life, that everything else that I've counted on is up for grabs, and that the awesome things you are going to do are not going to be the things that I looked for, the things that I expected or wanted, that I will have you, and you are what I need. It's you that I see. It's you that I long for. And come what may, be with me and let me be with you. That's all I'm asking for. Bring us together because I can no longer tolerate life without you. I have seen you and I am desperate for you and I am pleading that you would renew me and make me yours. And this kind of desperate pleading leads to renewal. There are so many examples in church history that that you can You can look to and find reassurance that desperate pleading leads to renewal. You can read about the way that Jonathan Edwards organized the the churches of Massachusetts in desperate prayer for the presence of God and the first great awakening happening. Or or 100 years later, Jeremiah Lanfear did the same thing in New York City. Or you can just think right now, today, of the church in China, forced into desperation 70 years ago by Mao Zedong and his regime, persecuted with leaders thrown into prison, and they are not satisfied with making it. But if seeing God's vision for all the nations to come before him and are desperate for that and are pleading for that and are declared, it's not just that we're going to endure, that we're going to outlast the persecution, but we are sending out heralds all the way from where we stand back to the city of Jerusalem across the hardest, roughest territory there is for the gospel to penetrate. But we're going because we cannot handle being a part of anything less. And the the church that was numbering in the few thousands when all the Westerners were kicked out is at least in the tens of millions. And Chinese brothers and sisters are in Kyrgyzstan and Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and in Syria and places you and I wouldn't dare to set foot because they saw God and could not say anything other than here I am, send me. And God answered them, pleading leads to renewal. You can see this more than anything in the way 
that God answered Isaiah's prayer. In, in desperation, God cries out, Isaiah cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And God answered him. 700 years later, God answered him. And listen to me, we believe in the resurrection. Seven year, 700 years is a little while. In Jesus, you have literally, and I literally mean literally, all the time in the world. This isn't going to get done over lunch today. But pleading leads to renewal. God, Isaiah cries out in desperation, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And God answered him. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Isaiah prayed his prayer, and 700 years later, a man named Jesus, who lived in Galilee, went to see his wild and crazy backwoods cousin John to be dunked in a river. Chapter 1, verse 10. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. It's the same word. It means schismed, ripped apart, to never be mended. He saw the heavens being rended and the Spirit coming down on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, the voice of the Father. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Pleading leads to renewal in Jesus. Jesus came and the heavens were rent open, and God came down. And Jesus healed the sick. Are you sick? Are you sick unto death of your soul being like a polluted garment? Or being weighed down by the same repetitive sins? Jesus would be your healer. Jesus rent the heavens and came down and he fed the hungry. Are you hungry? You hungry for more than going through the motions of a decent and quiet life? Are you hungry to see that the glory of God fills the earth? Jesus would be your feast. Jesus rent the heavens and came down and loved the lonely. Is that you? Are you lonely? Have you mastered putting on a good smile and sending a clever quip but feel utterly unseen and unseeable. Jesus has seen you, has known you, and longs to be with you. And not only did Jesus do these things, then he died. He carried a cross that should have been ours and bled from wounds made by our sins and gave himself up for us. And if you've, if you've got your Bible, turn back just a page. And I'm looking at Matthew's account of the death of Jesus. 
And Jesus, this is verse 50 of chapter 27, and and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into, same word again, rent into from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus dies and heaven comes down. The skies are split open. The the curtain in the temple decorated with stars and moon to represent the heavens is ripped asunder. And the presence of God rushes in on people like you and me. Jesus died, and not only does the earth shake as Isaiah prayed, but more than that, the tombs themselves are split open and death has power no more. The very gates of hell are battered down by the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus begins to make all things new. Even me, even you, will you see it? Will you be satisfied with nothing else? Will you cry out for it and watch God give birth to new life in the midst of the ashes to which you have been clinging. In the the words of Elizabeth Rooney, now, now is the shining fabric of our day torn open, flung apart, rent wide by love. No longer the the tight enclosing sky, the blue bowl or the star illumined tent. We, we are laid open to infinity because it didn't stop at the cross. Because Easter love has burst his tomb and ours now. Nothing stands between us and God's desire. Not flesh, not stars, not sky, not even sin. Now glory himself waits so that he can enter in. Now, now, now. Now does the dance begin. God, we see you and we need to see more of you. The the whole earth is full of your glory and we wander about in shadows and mist with blind eyes. Wake us up and let us see. Let us see you high and lifted up. And let us see you meek and mild, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. Let us see you seated on the throne, overthrowing every last enemy with death lying dead at your feet. And let us see you dying for us, crying out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Let us see you, Jesus. And let us be satisfied with nothing less. Forgive us our thin satisfactions and wake in us the hunger for which we were made. And teach us by your spirit and your strength. We can't do it on our own. Teach us to plead. And restore us, O God. Let your face shine on us. Let us see your glory full of grace and truth. That we may be saved. Amen.